Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Durham University Center for Catholic Studies, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAN. The following lecture was presented in November 2019 at a conference on the Franciscan legacy, a conference hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies and sponsored by the Franciscan families of the UK and Ireland. This lecture by Mary Hyman is entitled Remembering St. Francis, Constructions and Deconstructions. In March 2013, so immediately after his election, the current Pope held a press conference in the Vatican during which he explained his reasons for choosing the, the papal name Francis. During the election, he explained, right away, thinking of the poor, I thought of St. Francis of Assisi, and then of all the wars. Francis, he reflected, is also the man of peace. That is how the name came into my heart, Francis of Assisi. For me, he is the man of poverty, the man of peace, the man who loves and protects creation. These days, we do not have a very good relationship with creation, do we? He is the man who gives us this spirit of peace, the poor man. In his quick characterization of St. Francis of Assisi as the poor man, the man of peace, the man who loves and protects creation, Francis I was drawing on, upon thoroughly modern understandings of the 13th century saint who took literally the gospel injunction to sell all you have and give it to the poor, and who was so in tune with nature that he sang in praise of Brother Sun and Sister Moon and preached the word of God even to the birds. The poor man of Assisi has come to seem universal, a saint for all times and places. Remembered selectively, often sentimentally, as a wandering holy man imbued with compassion for all living things, St. Francis of Assisi is attractively accessible, as easily approached by a Buddhist as a Christian, by an ecologist and as a Hindu. But although St. Francis of Assisi has come to seem uncontroversial, as open to Protestants as Catholics, to non-Christians as Christians, historically speaking, this is a very recent development. For a good 500 years, Francis of Assisi was understood to be quintessentially and exclusively Roman Catholic, an obedient son of the Church of Rome, whose simplicity of faith and obedience to his ecclesiastical superiors was held up as a model for other Catholics to follow. Although claimed long after the Reformation as a religious reformer who spoke truth to power, a sort of proto-Protestant or even proto-socialist rebel, Francis appears in fact to have stayed close to the Catholic Church throughout his life and to have avoided any taint of heresy or disobedience. Francis was, of course, the founder of two important Catholic organizations, at least still in existence, the Friars Minor or Franciscans and the lay society known as the Tertiaries or Third Order of St. Francis. He was also the inspiration for a third, the Franciscan Sister Congregation of the Poor Clares. To do all of this took organization and planning. Francis was no wandering mystic. It was not from a voice in the wilderness, nor even from a burning bush, but rather from the crucifix at San Damiano's church near Assisi that he first heard a voice instructing him, go and repair my house, which you see is falling down. And in words which Francis initially understood quite literally, as a divine command to go and restore derelict churches in the vicinity of Assisi. It was again in church 
while, listening, while hearing Mass at the Chapel of Our Lady of the Angels, better known as the Portimpula, in the plain below Assisi, that Francis, in response to hearing the biblical text, do not possess gold, nor two coats, nor shoes, nor a staff, was moved spontaneously to give away his clothes and to put on the simple tunic belted with a length of rope that was to become the Franciscan religious habit. Even his famous withdrawal to Laverna in the Apennines, where he experienced visions and on Holy Cross Day 1224, mysteriously received the stigmata, or marks of Christ's wounds, on his body. This did not take place in a prophet's wilderness, but at a well-established place for spiritual retreats, which was put at his disposal by the Lord of Cusi and owned by local Benedictines. Francis evidently saw no contradiction in simultaneously following gospel counsels of perfection, seeking the approval of his ecclesiastical superiors, and obeying church instructions. He insisted that his followers should respect the wishes of local parish priests and local bishops. He stated explicitly that any member of his community who strayed from the Catholic faith in life, in word, or in deed, should be immediately expelled from the brotherhood. Indeed, uh, the laws that Francis drew up to regulate the communal life of his followers were taken directly to the highest ecclesiastical authority, the Pope, for approval. Francis took care to show the first sketch of his community, of the community that was to become the Franciscans to Innocent III in person. He also saw to it that the final rule governing the Friars Minor was issued in a papal bull of 1223 by Honorius III. Even when he was dying, Francis is recorded as having made a point of commanding his brethren always to remember to, quote, love and honor the clergy of the church. Obedient to mysterious voices from the high altar, Francis was equally eager to respond to papal directives. It was in response to Innocent III's appeal at the Lateran Council in 1215 for a new crusade to reclaim the Islamic world for Christendom that Francis determined to help convert the Muslim so-called infidel. In 1219, Francis, together with 12 friars, set off from Ancona for the Holy Land. Although they were forced to turn back in 1212 because of bad sailing conditions in the Adriatic, and again in 1213 because Francis fell ill in Spain, in 1219, in the company of Gautier de Brienne's crusaders, Francis finally succeeded in crossing to the Muslim side near Damietta in Egypt. It was here that Francis attempted to persuade Sultan al-Malik al-Kamil to become a Catholic. If you and your people will accept the word of God, he is reported to have told the Sultan, I will with joy stay with you. If you yet waver between Christ and Muhammad, cause a fire to be kindled, and I will go into it with your priests that you may see which is the true faith. After the Sultan and the Imams refused to accept the challenge, Francis returned to Italy via Palestine, where he made his pilgrimage to the Holy Land. According to the accounts later attributed to St. Bonaventure, the Sultan afterwards converted in secret or accepted a deathbed baptism as a long-term consequence of this brief but impressive encounter with Francis. The pattern of obedience to Catholic teaching and church authority that can be seen in Francis's life and the rule he established for his followers was further underlined in his own doctrinally impeccable spirituality and that which was promoted by the religious foundations he created. Although Francis's enthusiastic literalism in accepting the gospel command to sell all you have and give it to the poor 
was shared by the Waldensians, Francis refrained from following them in preaching without formal permission or in criticizing the church for worldliness. He was similarly careful to avoid the heretical ideas of the Albigensians, making explicit that equal stress should be given to the humanity and to the divinity of Christ. Nor was there any Wycliffeite, Hussite, or proto-Protestant minimalism about the Franciscan approach to the saints. It was in order to express devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary that each of the orders that Francis founded insisted upon the observation of the thrice daily Angelus with its repetition of the Hail Mary. Devotion to Mary led Franciscans of all kinds to be associated with the ardent defense of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception as early as the 14th century, a good six centuries before its dogmatic approval in 1854. Approved Catholic doctrine was further spread through Francis's promotion of Christmas cribs as a mean of contemplating the central mystery of the Incarnation through close attention to the infant Jesus and the Holy Family. Orthodox doctrine was also taught through the Franciscans' early concentration on Christ's passion in the ritualized devotion which offered, um, known as the Stations or Way of the Cross, which offered a substitute pilgrimage to the Holy Land, while at the same time stressing the central importance of penance. And this spread from Franciscan communities to all corners of the Catholic Church over the course of the 19th century and became a standard feature in Catholic churches worldwide. Francis and his followers were rewarded for their loyalty to the Holy See by being granted official sanctions of approval by a series of popes. It was only a year after Francis's revelation at the Portiuncula, and according to legend, because of a dream in which Innocent III saw the barefoot friar saving the Basilica of St. John from Lateran from collapse, that Francis's first rule for the common life of his disciples was approved in a private interview with the Pope of 1209 or 1210. In 1216, Honorius III was similarly quick to grant the rare privilege of a plenary indulgence to be attached to the Portiuncula, which allowed pilgrims to the chapel to be rewarded with the removal of the temporal punishment due to their sins. Francis, having been helped at every stage in his mission by the approbation of the church, was canonized with remarkable speed. In July, 12, sorry, in July 1228, less than two years after his death in October 1226, uh, Gregory IX officially declared Francis to be a saint. He had, as the English Catholic hagiographer Alban Butler put it, already entered into glory in his lifetime. St. Francis's popular appeal was further enhanced after his death by the publication of three especially influential pious biographies, those attributed to St. Bonaventure, Thomas of Silano, and the Tres Socii, or Three Companions. All three of these early hagiographies stressed Francis's conformity to the perfect Christian model and recorded signs and wonders as additional evidence of his particular favor with God. In addition to being associated with other miracles, Francis was claimed as the first stigmatic, being reported by all three sources to have received the impression of Christ's wounds during a vision in which he saw a six-winged seraph enclosing the crucified Lord. He was further said by St. Bonaventure to have possessed divine foresight and to have received miraculous communions. The less formalized collection of popular medieval legends about St. Francis, known as the Fioretti, or Little Flowers, additionally describes how he cured a leper in both body and soul 
by the simple act of bathing him, how he sometimes floated above the ground while praying, and most famously, how he stopped a wolf from terrorizing the villagers of Gubbio by reasoning kindly with it. Once reassured that it would stop being chased by dogs or men, the beast put its paw into Francis's hand as a token of his promise to leave the villagers in peace. The wolf was afterwards said to have been as meek as a lamb. As described by his first biographers and endorsed by a series of popes, St. Francis of Assisi had all the qualities to make him into a prime symbol of Roman Catholic orthodoxy. Francis had an impeccable record of ecclesiastical obedience, doctrinal correctness, devotional depth, papal endorsements, and a strong popular following, an immense, impressive legacy in the shape of three religious communities. Francis had renounced worldly wealth, preached the gospel, healed the sick, performed miracles, and restored peace. His stigmata suggested to contemporaries that like the crucified Lord he sought so closely to imitate, he deliberately sacrificed himself in order to redeem others. Signs and wonders were said to have followed him as they had followed Christ. We might reasonably expect Francis to have been made into an official embodiment of Catholic truth as opposed to doctrinal error, not only against the Albigensian and Waldensian heresies of his own day, but also by extension, the later Wycliffeite, Hussite, Lutheran, Calvinist, and other proto-Protestant or Protestant heresies which were to follow, most notably during the Reformation and Counter-Reformation periods. St. Francis's of Assisi's suitability to exemplify points of difference between Protestant and Catholic doctrine were not lost on rival Protestant polemicists. Works which presented St. Francis as the quintessential popish idol, like Bartolomeo Ilbizzi's The Alcaron of the Barefoot Friars, that is to say, an heap or number of the blasphemous and trifling doctrines of the wounded idol St. Francis, taken out of the Book of His Rules, first published in England in 1542 and endorsed with a preface by no less a personage than Martin Luther, remained in print well beyond the high point of Reformation controversy. Albizzi's own work was reissued in at the very least 11 separate editions, English editions, over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries. At least one fresh edition was brought out as late as 1845. During the, during the Enlightenment, fashionable distaste for medieval miracles and widespread aversion to mendicant and contemplative orders, combined with the low reputation in which Franciscan communities had sunk on the European continent, ensured that Francis of Assisi's reputation also suffered. Even the Bollandists' Acta Sanctorum of 1643 and onwards dismissed most of the pious stories surrounding the saint as mere fables and legends, its Jesuit editor considering it beneath his dignity to read, let alone draw evidence from, the Fioretti. By the end of the 18th century, the Englishman Hallam appears to have been expressing a widely held opinion when he pronounced Francis to have been, quote, a harmless enthusiast pious and sincere, but hardly of sane mind, unquote, who was much rather accessory to the intellectual than the moral degradation of mankind. The unearthing of the saint's body in 1818 aroused little interest outside Italy, and the 600th anniversary of Francis's death in 1826 went unremarked by non-Catholics. The whole world outside the Roman Catholic communion, as Walter Seaton put it, 
then thought of him, if it thought of him at all, simply as a dead Roman Catholic and of no relevance to their lives. The earliest Victorian attempt to rehabilitate St. Francis and bring him to public attention as a suitable model for admiration and emulation appears to have been Frederick William Faber, one of the most flamboyant of the Tractarian converts to Catholicism and a fervent enthusiast for French and Italian Catholic spirituality. In 1847, Faber translated L.F.C. Chalip's Vie de Saint-François d'Assise as part of a new oratorian series of religious lives that were intended to re-educate native or recusant English Catholics, thought to have been overly influenced by prevailing Protestant attitudes in Britain into reviving their genuine Catholic sentiments. Henry Edward Manning, who after his conversion to Catholicism rose to become Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, brought out the first English edition of the formerly despised Little Flowers, again for the edification of his fellow English Catholics in 1864. In 1867, Cardinal Manning followed this with an edition of St. Bonaventure's The Life of St. Francis of Assisi, which he described in the preface as the life of a saint written by a saint. To these most self-consciously Roman Catholic converts from the Church of England, the life of St. Francis was to be prized above all as an example of how strict obedience to the teaching of the Catholic Church could lead ultimately to a mystical union with God. Faber was at pains to explain in his essay on the interest and characteristics of the lives of the saints of 1853 that the point of reading religious biographies was not to gain psychological or historical insights into a particular saint's mental world. Rather, it was to extrapolate from his or her life, quote, a sort of summary of spiritual theology in a form much more attractive than the mere rules of a spiritual treatise and kindling in us all the while a more personal interest in those who have power in heaven, as well as a deeper veneration for them and a more solid devotion to them. Since the purpose of devotional, unlike secular reading, was to discern eternal religious truths rather than individual human quirks or underlying historical principles, Faber warned his readers that these lives must be dull to those who read them for any other object than of uniting themselves more closely to God, whose life the saints by definition imitated more or less literally. In accordance with strictly doctrinal understandings of the spiritual significance of the saints, 19th century Roman Catholic lives of St. Francis, in England as elsewhere, followed the lead given in medieval texts by strongly emphasizing Francis's conformity to the life as well as to the teaching of Jesus. Stressing the literal correspondences between the two lives, Catholic writers tended to repeat from St. Bonaventure that Francis had been born in a stable, joined by 12 disciples, lived a life of holy poverty, and above all, been mystically united to Christ through his voluntary acceptance of what was in effect a second crucifixion. Far from appearing peripheral, the stigmata were understood as completing Francis's similitude to Christ and focusing attention on right understandings of self-sacrifice and suffering as central to Christian redemption. It is for this reason that Catholic statues and pictures of the saints invariably showed him displaying the five wounds or else presented him in cruciform shape, while devotional societies named after him laid stress on the stigmata as a timely reminder of the importance to Christians of penitence and the mortification of self. 
as a prayer recommended for the use of Franciscan tertiaries begged, O Lord Jesus Christ, who when the world was growing cold, didst renew the sacred marks of thy passion in the flesh of the most blessed Francis, in order to inflame our hearts with the fire of thy love, mercifully grant that by his merits and prayers, we may always carry the cross and bring forth fruits worthy of penance. From about the 1840s, it appears to have been precisely this sort of emphasis on the value and holiness of suffering and of the universal need for repentance, which could make the deepest appeal to earnest Christians, whether they came from evangelical, Anglican, or Catholic backgrounds. It was a climate in which revivalist missions of the 1840s, Catholic as well as Protestant, set out to awaken or sharpen a sense of sin among ordinary Victorians, that a number of Anglicans began to look wistfully at those features of a revived and enlarged English Catholic Church which claimed to offer assured access to forgiveness. As W.J. Butler wrote to John Keeble in 1845, many of my own personal friends are now repenting bitterly. Their sins are lying like a heavy load upon them and torturing them indescribably. They long to go through some form of prescribed penance. Cardinal Nicholas Wiseman, as early as 1848, pointedly contrasted English Catholic priests who saw the the poor in flocks around the confessional with the Anglo-Catholic ministry, which remained, as he said, powerless and flat among the masses. Anglo-Catholics, who evidently felt there was some truth in the jibe, experimented with auricular confession at their 12 days mission in 1869 and at the London mission in 1874, and soon began to adopt Franciscan devotions. Some Anglicans converted to Roman Catholicism precisely because their need for penance had not been satisfied in the Church of England. Lady Georgiana Fullerton, who became a Catholic in 1846 and quickly joined the Third Order of St. Francis, became a devotee not only of confession, but also of the Franciscan way or devotions, uh, sorry, or stations of the cross. This quintessentially Franciscan devotion, which had been unfamiliar to most English Catholics before 1840, but had spread to all dioceses by the 1860s, soon became a normal feature of retreats and missions held by Passionists, Redemptorists, and Jesuits, as well as Franciscans. The Franciscan devotions to the Stations or Way of the Cross complemented Evangelical Victorians' own tendencies to focus on the crucifixion. At a time when the religious and moral consequences of industrial degradation and poverty were stirring the consciences of many middle-class Victorians, St. Francis also came to be seen as a model of how genuinely Christian charity might be practiced. Disagreements among Protestants about the validity of distinguishing between the, quote, deserving and, quote, undeserving poor were reflected in Victorian lives of St. Francis which agreed that the saint's devotion to lady poverty had been truly Christian, but hotly debated whether or not he could have been understood as having endorsed begging. The medieval idea of caritas, in which people had made themselves familiar with wretchedness and by personal sympathy, no less than pecuniary aid, strove to mitigate the sufferings under which the afflicted were bowed down, it's a quotation, this presented a contrasting model to the poor laws, whose iniquities had so scandalized the Quaker Frederick Lucas that he converted to Catholicism because of them in 1839. The idea that givers and receivers of charity were equally holy, which Robert Donovan and Sheridan Gilley have identified as the distinguishing mark of 19th century Catholic charitable effort, 
and which was most closely associated with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul and with the Third Order of St. Francis, spread throughout the English Catholic community from the 1840s, reaching all dioceses by 1860. It was because Franciscan tertiaries aimed to transform their attitudes to the poor, vowing, like Lady Georgiana Fullerton in 1857, to practice poverty in every way in my power, and to offer ardent prayers to St. Francis to obtain for me the five virtues of humility, obedience, mortification, love of poverty, and patience, that socially-minded Anglicans were drawn to the Franciscan way. John Ruskin, for example, was so impressed that he considered becoming a Catholic simply in order to be allowed to join the Third Order of St. Francis. By the second half of the 19th century, a number of factors had combined to make St. Francis seem far less alien to British sensibilities than would have been possible before. Evangelical earnestness and attention to the crucifixion and a widespread romantic yearning for an age of faith thought to have existed in the Middle Ages, combined with the attractive simplicity of the Poverello's approach to faith, charity, and penance, made Protestant publishers willing to look at the previous neglected saint as a suitable model for a morally improving Christian life. The Sunday Library for Household Reading was the first Protestant series to commission a fresh life of the saint, and the task was undertaken by the Scottish-born Margaret Oliphant, herself introduced to the Acta Sanctorum by Carlyle in 1861. Mrs. Oliphant's Francis of Assisi, first published in 1868, offered a highly sympathetic portrait of one who, quote, cared for nothing save Christ and him crucified, except indeed Christ's world, the universe redeemed, the souls to be saved, the poor to be comforted, the friends to be cherished, the singing bird and bubbling fountains, the fair earth and the sweet sky. Mrs. Oliphant Francis was at once a romantic hero and a practical reformer, a chivalrous knight and a nature poet, whose love of the Umbrian countryside anticipated 19th century aestheticism, yet whose, quote, holy evangelical spirit enabled him to transcend the narrow confines of 13th century Catholic culture. Acutely conscious of her duty as a historian to empathize with the age in which her subject lived, and evidently charmed by the romance of the Fioretti, Oliphant was at pains to distinguish between those stories surrounding the saint, which she judged to be simply legendary, produced by the gradually expanding superstition of the order and the desire to raise its founder to the high, highest fabulous rank of sainthood, or rather, semi-deity. And, quote, those which contained a hidden soul of meaning, such as the vulgar myth, yet are strangely moved by without knowing why. A truly Christian understanding of the saint's life, it seemed, fell somewhere between the twin extremes of a doctrinaire medieval Catholicism, which, quote, shaped every detail of his life so as to place it in exact correspondence with that of our Lord, and an overly rationalistic brand of 19th century Protestantism, which was tempted, quote, to explain away everything wonderful through the reductionist science of textual criticism. The real St. Francis, as Mrs. Oliphant described him, was recognizably evangelical in his moral earnestness, his emphasis on missionary work, and in his establishment of a lay society for those men and women who were asked to make no sacrifice beyond that of the heart and became, as she put it, the Puritans of that distant age, the Society of Methodists, the children of the new light. But he was also a man 
about whom incidents full of poetic beauty quite naturally gathered and whose reputation for miracles was not to be dismissed out of hand. Taking it as an axiom that every true revival of religion is unquestionably accompanied by signs which are not trickery and cannot be entirely the creation of morbid fancy and enthusiasm, Mrs. Oliphant was prepared to find rational grounds for belief in Francis's miraculous cures and legendary power over animals and was even willing to entertain the possibility of a supernatural explanation of the stigmata. Although she invariably concluded that there was not enough evidence one way or the other to pronounce on the authenticity of any individual miracles, she also implied that the fault might lie more with 19th century skepticism than with 13th century credulity. What made her portrayal distinct from those of earlier more skeptical critics was her readiness to entertain the possibility of miracles to insist that no popular return to the habits of piety has ever been made from the time of the apostles without the occurrence of certain spiritual phenomena which cannot be entirely explained away by any theory. It was this openness of approach which earned her praise from an English Catholic reviewer for having written of the saint with, quote, affection and even devotion, for using a method surprisingly pleasant for a Protestant, <laughs> and for having said but little that a Catholic might not have said. Mrs. Oliphant's biography of St. Francis was acceptable not only to English Catholics, though in need of slight doctrinal correction here and there, but also to Victorian sensibilities more generally. Ralph Townshead has argued that it would be hard to find another religious life which more fairly represents the English spirit of saintly heroism of the 19th century. Evangelical in tone, historical and judicious, it satisfied, as he has pointed out, most 19th century heroic demands. Kingsley's requirement of heroism in the nature of self-sacrifice, Carlyle's admiration of the vivid and radical medieval church, Mosley's belief in the poetical hero, De Vere's notion of the saint as an heroic specter of Christ. Since no contemporary discussion could avoid touching, if only by implication, upon the deeper and more sensitive matter of how the life of Jesus, and consequently the meaning of Christianity, ought to be seen, Mrs. Oliphant's Francis of Assisi also reaffirmed the certainties of traditional faith. In the face of doubts about gospel miracles that had been made particularly acute by the publication of Essays and Reviews in 1860, she affirmed the enduring reality of the supernatural and chastised the Victorian public for its tend tendencies towards skepticism. In stressing Francis's likeness to Christ and being prepared to recognize a common spirit in all quote, genuine Christianity, whether technically evangelical, Methodist, Catholic. Her portrait also offered what was in effect a bridge between traditional Christians of all denominational backgrounds. Alongside numerous reprintings of Mrs. Oliphant's biography, traditionally minded Catholic presentations of the saint continued to be published throughout the 1870s and 1880s. These included works such as the popular Franciscan libraries Flowers from the Garden of St. Francis for Every Day in the Year, 1879, Léopard de Chérance's Saint-François d'Assise, first translated into English in 1880, Léon de Monnier's Devout Histoire de Saint-François, 1889. So these were going along side by side with reissues of, of Margaret Oliphant's biography. The battle between Catholic and Protestant, supernaturalist and rationalist, biblical traditionalist and textual critic took a long time to come, 
but it hit read English readers and hard with the appearance in 1894 of the Swiss Calvinist Paul Sabatier's Life of St. Francis. Sabatier, who followed self-consciously in the footsteps of his teacher and mentor Ernest Renan, took as his first premise that the task of distinguishing what he called the legend of St. Francis from its true history was the only honest and manly way of approaching the saint. Traditional Catholic hagiographies of St. Francis, he claimed, had done him ill service by insisting on the incorporation of supernaturalism and a rigid conformity to the pattern of the saints. By such means, the saints perhaps gain something in respect of the superstitious, he scoffed, but their lives lose something of virtue and of communicable strength. Forgetting that they were men like ourselves, we no longer hear in our conscience the command, go and do likewise. The Francis of Assisi that Sabatier claimed to have discovered was no meekly obedient son of the Church of Rome. Rather, he was a social revolutionary and a proto-Protestant whose return whose return to the unadorned gospel message and insistence on the creation of a lay movement saved Christianity from the corruptions of the medieval church, so that for a few years at least, Christendom could turn in amazement to Assisi as to a new Bethlehem. Such heights of nobility as could be seen in the saint's life, which reached, quote, not to a sect, but to humanity, had been sadly travestied by an uncomprehending Catholic church whose own presentation of St. Francis as from the very cradle surrounded with aureoli and nimbus, obscured the heroism of a man infinitely nobler than they have made him to be. Sabatier's portrait, which was translated into English within a year of publication and went into some 45 editions and a score of languages, was not only more forcefully Protestant than anything which had previously appeared in English, it was also far more dismissive of explanations which could not be understood in purely human and natural terms. Claiming the authority of newly scientific methods of textual criticism, Sabatier's work presented what seemed an authoritative challenge to the comfortable compromise between legend and history, naturalism and supernaturalism, Protestantism and Catholicism, which had so warmed the hearts of Mrs. Oliphant's readers. Where Mrs. Oliphant had hesitated over the difficulties of historical sources, Sabatier was confident. Where she saw merit in an age of Christianity portrayed as at once more infantile but more devout than her own, he detected institutional corruption and the speedy reversal of Francis's most cherished ideals. Where she had left it to the reader to decide upon the sensitive question of the stigmata, he dismissed belief in miracles as immoral and suggested it was to the realm of mental pathology, not supernaturalism, that one should turn for a plausible explanation of what had happened at Laverna. Just as Renan's notorious Vie de Jésus of 1863, which it had sickened George Eliot to have to translate into English, had portrayed the preacher of Galilee as nothing more than an example of moral excellence, so Sabatier's presentation of St. Francis as wholly admirable, but exclusively human, hero, trampled on the delicate balance being struck by pious and morally earnest English women and Englishmen from every shade of religious and increasingly irreligious opinion to claim St. Francis as their own. Once the debate had in this way been opened up, there was a positive scramble. From the 1890s, scores of romanticized appreciations of Francis the Troubadour, Francis the Poet, Francis as the subject of Giotto's paintings or Dante's verses began to flood the market. 
dozens of socialist-minded or humanitarian biographies, books with amiable titles like Everybody's St. Francis, Francis the Little Poor Man of Assisi, Francis the Apostle of Humaneness, and St. Francis of Assisi, Social Reformer, soon followed. The Little Flowers, first translated into English in 1864, was issued as a Temple classic in 1896, re-released as an everyman in 1906, and by 1925 had become a, a world classic. By 1891, the first Anglican Third Order of St. Francis, which was granted formal recognition in 1898, had been set up, and in 1921, the first Anglican community of Franciscans, officially approved as a Franciscan congregation within the Church of England in 1931, established itself at Batcombe in Dorset. St. Francis, it seemed, was no longer the exclusive property of Catholics, but had become the darling of high, broad, and low-church Anglicans, Protestants, Aesthetes, Agnostics, Socialists, even Atheists. By the turn of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century, the change in popular attitudes to St. Francis, in Britain as on the European continent, could hardly have been more complete. Francis of Assisi had come not merely to be admired, but to be championed with a degree of warmth which can be compared in intensity only to the cult that had surrounded him in the 13th and 14th centuries. The most obvious change in atmosphere could be seen in the sheer number of hagiographies and biographies that were written and published in these years. Whereas English language biographies of the saint had been appearing at about the rate of one or two per decade from the 1520s to the 1860s, between 1890 and 1939, more than 150 new or newly, newly issued biographies, all of which found something to commend in the life and teaching of the Holy Man of Assisi, were published in England alone. And the number of selections from the saints' writings, which were issued in the same period, was also around 150 or more. New lives, each of which drew Francis in, likeness, in the likeness of its own denominational image, became familiar Sunday reading for and, children and adults alike. In her Brother Francis, or Less Than the Least, of 1896, Staff Captain Eileen Douglas of the Salvation Army stressed Francis's vital religion, soldierly bearing, missionary endeavors, and above all, his establishment of a lay society, the Third Order of, or, quote, Brethren of the Militia of Jesus Christ, as one of the most <laughs> powerful religious, social, and political influences the world has ever felt. Catholic corrections to what were perceived as Protestant errors rapidly followed. <laughs> the, Catholic, <laughs> the Catholic Truth Society, for example, launched a series of magic lantern lectures about St. Francis to tour the British Isles as a matter of urgency. <laughs> a selection of Catholic churches in London, Liverpool, and Birmingham were granted an extension of the privileges of the Porting... Um, I can't pronounce it. Portincula? Portincula, thank you. Indulgence. The Anglican Third Order of St. Francis, equally determined to protect the supernatural elements of the Holy Saint's life, began at the turn of the century to campaign in earnest for formal recognition in lay priesthood or a plea for the constitution of the Third Order after the method of St. Francis d'Assisi and St. Francis of Assisi and the Third Order in the Anglo-Catholic Church, both of which came out in 1898. The first popular edition of The Little Flowers, which came out as a temple classic in the same year, 1898, um, Arnold Toynbee, an Anglican, later remembered how all through his childhood this book lay on his parents' bedside table. So 
Sabatier's presentation to the world of the Speculum Perfectionis, also in 1898, not only laid the foundations for modern Franciscan studies, but also revealed that there was potentially a huge market for popular editions of medieval texts, such as The Little Flowers, and St. Bonaventure's Life, and that of the Three Companions, all of which were printed in succession and in cheap editions throughout the rest of the 20th century. In 1826, the 600th anniversary of the death of St. Francis of Assisi had passed completely unnoticed outside of Italy. By 1926, the 700th anniversary, the saint was acknowledged everywhere as a figure of universal importance. His image was proudly displayed on commemorative stamps. The British Society of Franciscan Studies, which had been in existence since 1902, put together a special display at the British Museum. Two million people went on pilgrimage to Assisi. A papal encyclical described Francis as a second Christ, Alter Christus. Benito Mussolini, ever alert to new ways to link Catholicism and Italian patriotism to his fascist movement, paid loud tribute to Il Piu Santo de Santi al Cristissimo e al Humanità in a rousing speech to the Italian nation. Confronted with a plethora of new lives, together with cheap popular editions of Franciscan sources, religious biographers became increasingly militant in putting forward distinctively Protestant or Catholic interpretations of the saint's significance. The Methodist John Telford's Thoughts from St. Francis of Assisi, 1924, went so far in emphasizing Francis's conformity to an evangelical pattern that although he found room to discuss the to discuss the saint's conversion, call to preach, and missionary endeavors, he omitted even to mention the stigmata, let alone the wolf of Gubbio. Increasingly, when miracles were discussed at all, they tended to be explained away. The old theories that the wolf of Gubbio had really been a brigand named Lupo, or that the story, <laughs> or that the story of the stigmata had been invented by Brother Elias were revived and widely circulated. To the legend that when Francis and his companions first set sail for Spain, their supplies were miraculously made to last the journey, Staff Captain Douglas of the Salvation Army offered an alternative explanation. The real fact, she ventured, was probably that the basket contained large supplies of beans and lentils and macaroni and such Italian foods that swell in the cooking and go a long way. As Protestant biographers grew increasingly reductionist in their readings of the supernatural elements of St. Francis's life, Catholic authors became more insistent that Francis's spirituality was inextricably linked to the teaching of the Catholic Church, whose eternal truths were, to be, who were claimed to be more faithfully preserved in medieval legends than in contemporary Protestant lives. Works like Kenner's Tell me how to pronounce it again. Portiuncula? Thank you. (laughs) Or the celebrated indulgence granted by our Lord Jesus Christ at the request of the Seraphic Father, St. Francis of Assisi, 1914, or Father Augustine's St. Francis and the Blessed Eucharist, 1932, with its chapters on Francis's, quote, reverence for priests, (laughs) love for the abiding presence, love for the Mass, made clear how devotion to the saint ought to be expressed by good Catholics. To conflicting Protestant and Catholic interpretations were increasingly added agnostic and even atheist portrayals. Socialist lives tended to be broadly Protestant in their acceptance of the notion, strongly urged by Sabatier and others, that St. Francis represented a sort of morning star of the Reformation, 
and followed their lead in finding rational explanations for purported miracles. They also took from Protestant biographies the notion that the early Franciscans had launched a social revolution in medieval society, but went further in stressing its political implications. Seeing in the life of St. Francis a bold restatement of the gospel injunction to create a just society, kingdom of heaven, on earth, Francis was presented as a proto-socialist revolutionary whose aim was to overthrow the practices of a corrupt theocracy and whose third order aimed to establish a classless society. This made him heroic and relevant even to Fabians, socialists, and communists. Although men and women in the 19th and 20th centuries increasingly held St. Francis dear, they were divided over how the object of their admiration should be seen. At the heart of their differences lay the question of whether the originally medieval Catholic features of the saint's life should be seen as historical accidents, deliberate distortions on the part of Catholic biographers, or essential to grasping his spirituality and religious message. While all could agree in praising Francis's likeness to Christ, his attitudes to poverty, his simplicity of heart, biographies differed as to what these concepts meant. To some, poverty was a holy state to be emulated, while to others it was a social problem to be solved or simply the proper object of charitable benevolence. Some understood simplicity to mean a childlike trust in the supernatural, others an unquestioning obedience to the church, still others the rejection of all institutional religion. Since the question of whether medieval legends should be taken literally or allegorically true was thought to have a direct bearing on the reality of the supernatural and credibility of, of gospel narratives, debates about St. Francis revealed not only sharpening denominational divisions, but also changing attitudes towards the plausibility of Christianity itself. The late 19th century and early 20th century explosion of interest in St. Francis of Assisi came about as the result of the attempt of individual authors, each representing a distinctive shade of theological or moral opinion, to claim the saint as his or her own, and so to promote correct religious teachings or ethical understandings of the world. But the existence of so many conflicting accounts and interpretations enabled the seeker after religious or moral truth to claim the saint's endorsement for almost any mix of religious or quasi-religious sentiments. The Franciscan scholar F.C. Burkett recalled with horror in 1931 how a very intelligent lady of my acquaintance professed to me a great interest in St. Francis, but a chance remark brought out the fact that she had never read any of the Speculum Perfectionis. I don't mean that she preferred Lemon's text to Sabatier's. She did not know any form of that great collection of anecdotes. So I lent her Mr. Steele's translation, the well-known little book in the Temple Classics. But what was the result? She told me, I read it with much, much interest, but I'm afraid that I like the Francis of the Little Plays better than this one. And she added, I know this is the real one. Sanctity, considered the president of Magdalen College, Oxford, in 1936, is a perplexing subject because it passes common understanding, and the cult of the saints has had curious practices. But the Christian thought of the world has found in Francis of Assisi a most special holiness. Through selective readings of the saint's life, or by concentrating only on the most palatable aspects of his piety, such as his attitudes to poverty, to nature, or to the infant Jesus, 
It was quite possible to feel devotion to Francis in scarcely Christian, let alone rigorously Catholic terms. As Pius XI felt obliged to remind the world in 1926, in the face of increasingly sentimental appropriations of the saint, the herald of the great king did not come to make men doting lovers of flowers, birds, lambs, fishes, or hares. He came to fashion them after the gospel pattern and to make them lovers of the cross. The writer G.K. Chesterton, himself a convert, tried a gentler approach. Rather than asking his readers to abandon the purely secular elements of their admiration for the saint, he invited them instead to believe that there was a higher understanding of sanctity to be found in the Catholic tradition. I too have lived in Arcady, he wrote, but even in Arcady, I met one walking in a brown habit who loved the woods better than Pan. Even so, at a convention of ecologists which took place in Florence in 1931, it was decided to make the 4th of October, St. Francis of Assisi's feast day, World Animal Day. By the second half of the 20th century, St. Francis's popularity was as strong as ever, but his message had become so diluted and transformed by the existence of hundreds of alternative, often mutually contradictory biographies, that he could no longer be said to be generally understood as a specifically Catholic saint. Francis's relations with animals, once interpreted as indicating a reversal of the enmity created between man and the animals after the fall, had come to symbolize an almost pantheistic union with nature, an interpretation which was only reinforced by popular ecological and later New Age sentiment. Just as Francis's preaching to the birds and kindly dealings with animals had come to be sentimentalized in ways that would have been foreign to 13th century and 14th century chroniclers, so those aspects of his life that seemed most uncompromisingly Catholic began to be quietly omitted from all but explicitly Catholic histories. The stigmata, first called into question by Protestant biographers as a fraud, a symptom of psychopathology, or at best, a natural response to an extraordinary degree of empathetic meditation on the passion, were increasingly left out of popular biographies. Francis's devotion to the Virgin Mary and to the Blessed Sacrament, like his association with crusades and determination to convert infidels to the, quote, true faith, were not only forgotten, but began to seem out of place with most people's conception of the saint. During the First World War, in the place of Francis's actual writings, some of which were disturbingly mystical and all of which were doctrinally Catholic, the so-called peace prayer or prayer of St. Francis, a prayer incorrectly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, began to spread widely. By the late 1960s and 1970s, the prayer, this so-called prayer of St. Francis had become a familiar sight on countless tea towels, postcards, and posters of sunsets and beaches. <laughs> Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. It was this unobjectionably non-denominational text, albeit slightly altered with the secular words truth and error, having been made to replace the explicitly religious terms faith and doubt that Margaret Thatcher invoked on the steps of 10 Downing Street <laughs> after her election victory in 1979. In the same year, Pope John Paul II proclaimed St. Francis to be, quote, the patron saint of ecologists, and the prayer of St. Francis, with its reference, references to faith and doubt restored, 
was sung at the, pun the funeral of Diana, Princess of Wales, in 1997, when it was heard by an estimated 2.5 billion people around the world. And then, of course, in, 20, in 2013, the saint's name was adopted by the current Pope. An animated cartoon, A Day in the Life of St. Francis, evidently aimed at Catholic preschoolers, can be seen on YouTube, if you go and have a look. And in the animation, St. Francis, presented as a tonsured-habited Franciscan friar, sets off to town one day to preach a sermon. Along the way, he is distracted by the need to rescue a kitten, help a farmer, cheer up a blind man, and join a group of children in a game of football. All these little diversions take up so much of his day that by the time night falls, St. Francis has yet to have reached town and delivered his sermon. The punchline, or rather the moral, of the story is that he had in fact been preaching the gospel all day long through his loving acts of kindness. The rise in devotion to St. Francis that became such a marked feature of English spirituality in the, early, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries seems to have come about for a number of reasons. A saint who boldly preached and lived the gospel, Francis appeared to earnest Victorians to offer a timely rebuke to the ten those tendencies of which they were the most ashamed, materialism, the loss of simple faith, and uneasy doubts about the reality of the supernatural dimension of life. Although they saw him very differently in doctrinal and theological terms, Victorian evangelicals, Anglicans, and Catholics could all agree that St. Francis had been animated by a truly Christian spirit of charity and penitence. Ernest Renan was not the only liberal skeptic to find consolation in the thought expressed by a Capuchin friar that although he might have spoken improperly of Christ, he had spoken with such warmth of, quote, the one perfect Christian after Jesus that St. Francis would surely save him. Francis of Assisi was for centuries perceived, and with good reason, as one of the most uncompromisingly Roman Catholic saints. All the evidence left to the Victorians suggested that he was hard-edged in doctrine, distinctive in devotion, unapologetically supernaturalist, literal in his interpretation of scripture, and wholeheartedly obedient to papal directives. Nevertheless, from the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, St. Francis of Assisi became increasingly popular as he simultaneously became increasingly malleable, inclusive, and denominationally indistinct. No longer seen as a controversial reformer or a troubling mystic, in our own day, St. Francis of Assisi has come to be understood widely as a saint for all seasons. This makes him an especially apt and inclusive symbol of current Christian endeavor to remain relevant, accessible, and Catholic in a secularized but not necessarily indifferent world. Thank you for listening.